0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're back in Second Thessalonians this morning. And we're going to look at these first five verses here in chapter 3, this final chapter. And Paul asked the Thessalonian community to pray for the progress and the spread of the gospel and the proclamation and the protection of the missionaries that are spreading that gospel. You know, Paul and his missionary team lived and worked in constant danger to fulfill their mission. They were always being attacked. They were always being run out of town. They were always being abused. So he asked them for prayer for the gospel and for the mission. In verse 1 he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread, may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Now, finally here is lope from the Greek and it means for the rest. Um, Paul uses this to introduce his closing statements, but sometimes he goes on for a couple chapters after he says this. So, this time he's only going to go on for one chapter where he says this. But he asked them, he says, pray for us. And the word pray here comes from the Greek prosyukomai. And here it's in the present tense. And that means continually pray. Make this a consistent pattern. Paul had told them this in the first letter when he said pray without ceasing. Basically the same thing because it's in the present tense. Continue to pray. Now when Paul wrote his letters to the New Testament churches, he invariably asked the recipients to pray for him. The saints at Corinth were reminded that their prayers helped him through times of difficulty. He says, you also must help us by prayer. The church in Rome was asked to pray for the apostles. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Yeshua the Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayer, So he's asking them to strive, to agonize in prayer with him. To God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. This is very similar to what he asked the Thessalonian believers to pray for. So he's continually encouraging them To pray, he ended his first epistle with this in Thessalonians. Oh, I'm sorry. He says, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. So he continually talked to them about that. Now, in his epistles, he asked for particular and pointed intercession from the saints. In Ephesians, he requested prayer. He said, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So he's asking them, you know, pray that this gospel would go forth. In Colossians, Paul appealed for open doors in order to teach the gospel wisely. Paul felt the need for prayer. And he believed it affected the effectiveness of his ministry. Paul needed their prayers. You know, he didn't assume that his impressive spiritual gifts and his great intellect is going to give him the future success that he needed. He knew that he had to depend on the Lord through prayer. Now, in light of what we saw at the end of the last chapter, this often raises some questions. You remember what he said as he ended the last chapter? No, you don't. I'll remind you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, some early manuscripts here read first fruits, like the ESV does, while others read from the beginning. So God chose you from the beginning. The New American Standard has that. Now, the UBS 4, you all know what that is? We've talked about this many times. The UBS 4, it's a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament. They rate variance in the text to say okay because you know there's differences in the text again we're talking some text here say first fruits some say from the beginning so they have this rating system that comes in and says well this is probably the most likely here well the ubs4 gives from the beginning a b rating which means it is almost certain so that's their opinion they say and it's you know when there when there's differences this deals with textual criticism they got to figure out which one is probably the accurate one Another reason here is Paul never used the concept of first fruits to illustrate election So Pauls from the beginning here parallels what he said to the Ephesians in chapter 1 where he says even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world The sense of it would be from the very beginning of time, God chose those who would be His. So 2 Thessalonians 2.12 speaks of the sovereign election of Yahweh. Paul also said this to them in the first letter that he sent them. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4 he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, He has chosen you. So from all eternity, God loved the church at Thessalonica. He chose them from the beginning from all the sinners in Macedonia. Now, in chapter 2, Paul talks to them about being chosen by God. And then in chapter 3, he asks them to pray for the progress of the spread of the gospel and the protection of the missionaries entrusted to deliver the message of salvation. And many believers here will ask, well, if God is sovereign in salvation, why do we need to pray for the progress of the gospel? Why do we need to pray for people to be saved? God's sovereign, right? Okay, G.K. Beale answers it this way. Some may think that election and prayer for the salvation of the lost are incompatible ideas. But Paul puts them right next to one another, as do other biblical authors. Paul and other New Testament writers juxtapose notions of divine sovereignty and human accountability without so much as giving a hint that there's a tension there. And he's right. I mean, we see it in this text, he goes from chapter 2, God chose you from the beginning, then he says, hey, pray for the gospel. What? I thought God chose us. Why don't you pray? Beale goes on to say, the link to the directly preceding context suggests that the motivation to pray in 3 1 for the spread of the gospel comes from realizing that the only hope. For lost humanity is that God has chosen them and that as a consequence, God will work in their hearts so that they will believe. Indeed, election is the springboard for prayer that unsaved people be saved. Paul tells his readers in 3.1 to pray to God that the message of the Lord may spread effectively because He is the only one who can make it advance by causing the conversion of others. It is consistent to pray that God converts sinners if we really believe that God is the one who elects people and changes sinners' hearts so that they desire to believe in Christ. And I agree with that. You know, if God wasn't in charge of this, there would be no need to pray to Him about it. But if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that Paul understands and preaches and teaches the sovereignty of God more than anybody. I mean, Paul talked about it constantly. Over and over, he prays for the lost. For example, Romans 9 is probably one of the most strongest texts you'll find anywhere on the sovereignty of God in salvation. He says in verse 18, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I remember the first time I taught through this text. Our church was not familiar at that time with the sovereignty of God. And, you know, it was rocking people's world. And Rob came up to me afterwards and said, I've never heard that in my life. And he showed me his Bible. He opened it up. It's all marked up, except Romans 9, not a mark. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, skip that chapter. Okay, just go right over that. And that's too often what happens. You know, people just, the sovereignty of God bothers them. But after Paul deals in Romans 9 with the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, I'll show mercy to whoever I want to. And then in verse 10, chapter 10, he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul says, God is sovereign in salvation. He saves who He will. So I'm praying for your salvation. And you're like scratching your head. What? You know, don't struggle with this too much. Just accept it as the Word of God. Understand, there's things we don't understand. We know God is sovereign. We know He's told us to pray. So Paul's understanding of God's sovereignty didn't hurt his prayer life one bit. I'm afraid it hurts a lot of our prayer lives. I'm afraid that we just get rocked by it. You know, that it's like, oh, if God's sovereign, I don't know how this is going to work out. We can't, what's the point of praying? What's the purpose of praying? Don't struggle with this. Now, with this in mind, Notice what Paul told the Philippians. And this is an important text here, people. Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. In other words, you watched me, you saw, you heard what I was saying, you watched my lifestyle, whatever you see. Then he says this, Practice these things. You ever heard someone say, Do as I say, not as I do? That is not biblical, people. That is not, that's as far from biblical as you can get, okay? This is what, this is biblical. This is what Paul says. Follow me. Practice. What you see me do, you do that. That's Paul. That's a leader. And if he's a leader, you should be able to follow them. So he's telling the Philippians, he's telling all believers, practice what you see in me. That would mean that we should be people of prayer. Because Paul prayed for all kinds of things. He believed in prayer. And he taught that believers were to pray. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly here is from the Greek proskertereo, and it meant to be strong towards, to endure in, to preserve in. It came to mean adhere to, persist in, continue to do something with intense effort. And the idea is despite difficulty. You're continuing steadfastly. The present tense here of proskertereo further emphasized the idea of persistence in prayer. And then he asked them for specific prayer in the area of evangelism. He said, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prisoner. So again, Paul, one of the strongest teachers on the sovereignty of God, in salvation, asked for prayer for evangelism. And Paul not only asked for prayer, he tells them that he is praying for them. And in verses 9-11 through he says, And so, from the day we heard, we had not ceased to pray for you. Now watch what Paul's praying. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the endurance and patience with joy. So do you see what Paul's praying for here? He's praying for their spiritual health. He's praying for their spiritual maturity. This was his passion, the spiritual growth of believers, and notice that he prayed for their its spiritual needs. Now, Rarely do we find Paul praying on behalf of physical needs. Now, I'm sure that there were believers in the churches with physical needs, but Paul didn't pray for that for the most part. He's praying for their spiritual growth, their spiritual progress. And he didn't pray for a generic church success and blessing either. He prayed specifically for spiritual needs that was Paul's passion. That was his burden. Now, if you're wondering how to pray, I think the Pauline prayers are really good guidelines, okay? They're brief, they're explicit, they're directed to the needs at hand. He didn't pray all around the world, okay, before coming to the point. Paul's prayers are tremendously instructive and often stand as a rebuke to the way many Christians pray today. These prayers are not only brief and explicit, they're spiritually strategic in nature. They center on one of the great spiritual issues facing individual believers in the body of Christ as a whole. Spirituality, that's the problem we're dealing with. So what's the context of your prayer life? Well, maybe we could just ask, do you have a prayer life? Do you pray for spiritual health for other believers? What's more important than a believer's spiritual health? A.W. Pink writes this, How different are the prayers of Scripture from those we are accustomed to hear in religious gatherings? Can you say amen to that? (laughs) And here's what we have to understand. Behind each of our prayer requests is a desire. We often pray only for physical or material needs. Why? Because we believe that health and material things will bring us happiness. And that's not true. Our happiness comes from our relationship with God. Paul actually gloried in his physical problems. Now, he went to the Lord, and he asked the Lord to help him with the problems he was facing. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says this. This is God's response." He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul's saying, Lord, take this stuff away from me. And God's saying, Look, my power is demonstrated. It's made perfect through that weakness. So Paul says this. Therefore... I'll boast in all more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So why did Paul glory in his physical problems? Was he some kind of sick sadomasochist? No, he gloried in his problems because they glorified God. You know, when you see someone going through a bunch of turmoil, a bunch of disaster in their life, and they're just at peace, they're content, trusting God, It brings attention to God. It brings glory to His name. Too often, we fall apart like the world does. Paul's prayers were focused on the spiritual needs of the people of God. And we see Paul's humility in his prayers. He was dependent upon Yahweh. Now, you've heard me say this a million times, I know, but prayerlessness is a declaration of self-sufficiency. The reason you don't pray is you say, God... I don't need you. I'm good. I got this. Don't even bother praying. Okay? That's what prayerlessness is. You're just saying, God, I'm okay. Where prayer, every time you do pray, you're declaring that you're dependent upon God for everything. And believers, we are dependent. Okay? So we just need to recognize it and start crying out in prayer. And believers, we need to understand that even though God is sovereign, Prayer is effective. I mean, this is what we see in the Scriptures. Psalm 50, verse 15 says, Call upon Me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify Me. 91.15, Psalms. When He calls to Me, I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will rescue Him and honor Him. Jeremiah 29.12 Then you will call upon Me and come and pray to Me, and I will hear you. So Yahweh promises over and over to answer our prayers. Now, Hezekiah was a man of prayer, and we see prayer's effectiveness in Hezekiah's life. He was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, just before Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken into Assyrian captivity. And notice how he prays. He says, for a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, "...had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed." So they're going about the Passover in the wrong way. "...for Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Yahweh pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, Yahweh the God of his fathers." So Hezekiah comes in prayer for this situation And it says, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanliness, and Yahweh heard Hezekiah, and He healed the people. So in response to Hezekiah's prayer, God heals these people who had violated the ordinances. Now, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came against Jerusalem, he attacked them, the first thing Hezekiah did was go to prayer. That's a good place to start, people. Usually it's our last prayer. Thing, but it's a good place to start. Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because this was prayed because of this, and they cried to heaven. So they're calling out to God, God, we're in trouble here. And Yahweh sent an angel. There's an answer to prayer, and cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. You know, God didn't just give them strength so they could fight. He just sent an angel and, you know, let's go wipe these people out. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he had come into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. That's great kids, right? His own kids killed him. So Yahweh saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to Yahweh, to Jerusalem, and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of the nations from that time onward. So believers, we see prayers effectiveness here. Hezekiah cries out to God, and God delivers Judah. Hezekiah's praise were, prayers were also effective in his personal life. All right, we see this in 2 Chronicles 32, 24. In those days, Hezekiah became sick. He was at the point of death, and he prayed to Yahweh. And he answered him and gave him a sign. Now, to get the full picture here, let's go to 2 Kings 20. that gives the same story, a little more detail. In those days, Hezekiah became sick. He was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says Yahweh: Set your house in order, for you shall die and not recover. Well, that's not a message you want to hear from the prophet. Okay, you're not feeling well. The prophet comes. Guess what? You're going to die. Get everything ready. You're going. So what? What would you do here? What do you do? Well, you would just say, Well, God's sovereign. He said I'm going to die. That's it. Let me get my affairs in order. Probably not. You'd probably do. Most of us would probably do the same thing. Like God, is there another chance of something else going on here? It says, Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to Yahweh, saying, Now, O Yahweh, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart. Ugh. I don't think I've ever prayed something like that. I mean, some of these prayers, you know, that just sounds like you're telling God how righteous you are. It just, I don't know. It seems a little weird to me. But he says, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of Yahweh came to him. Turn back, say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. Now that's good news. On the third day you shall go up to the house of Yahweh, And I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil that he may recover. So over and over in the life of Hezekiah, we see that he prayed and God answered his prayer. And what we see in the life of Hezekiah, I think that prayer is effective. Sometimes we just feel like, why? What is the point? In 1540, many you remember back then? Martin Luther's great friend and assistant, Frederick Meconius, he became sick. And they expected him to die in a very short time. And on his deathbed, he wrote a loving farewell note to Luther, And Luther received the letter and instantly sent back a reply. Here's Luther's reply, okay? I command thee in the name of God to live. We see some of the prayers of some of these people in Scripture and some of these men of God, and you're like, what? I command you in the name of God to live. He says, I have need of thee in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead but will permit thee to survive me. For this I am praying, this is my will, and my will be done. Because I seek only to glorify the name of God. That's Luther's prayer, okay? Now, that, that seems shocking to you? <laughs> yeah, uh, would any of you want to pray a prayer like this? <laughs> well, you know what's really shocking? One week later, Meconius recovered. And he died two, week, two months after the death of Luther. I command you to live. You know, if you scour the pages of Scripture, you're going to find that a study of the prayer life of the saints of God that most of them, most of the time, center their prayer life around others. It's not, you know, gimme, gimme, gimme. It's they're praying for other people. I think we need to ask the Lord what the disciples did when the disciples prayed. Lord, teach us to pray. You know, maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and maybe it's seemed like prayer is just kind of boring, or you don't have the time, or you don't understand the effectiveness, so you just don't do it. Well, the problem isn't prayer. The problem is you just don't realize how much God loves you and how much He's done for you. Because I think if you realize that, you'd realize that prayer was a delight, and most of your prayer would be thanksgiving. Just thanking God. Prayer is not something we endure. It's something you enjoy. And don't ever forget that prayer is effective. Now, in saying that prayer is effective, I'm not saying, pay attention to this, please, I'm not saying that prayer can change the mind of God or alter His plans. Roger Nicole, who was a Swiss Reformed Baptist theologian, Wrote this, and I love it. I think it's powerful. Paul says, There are people who feel that unless you are prepared to say that prayer can change God's mind and plan, there's no great value in prayer. If you believe you can change the mind of God through prayer, I hope you use some discretion. You get what he's saying? Uh, If you can change God's mind, be careful what you ask for, okay? Be careful there. He goes on to say... If that is the power you have, it is certainly a most dangerous thing. Surely God does not need our counsel in order to set up what is desirable. Surely God, whose knowledge penetrates all minds and hearts, does not need to have us intervene. To tell Him what He ought to do, the thought that we are changing the mind of God by our prayers is a terrifying conception. I'll be frank to confess, if I really thought I could change the mind of God by praying, I would abstain. You get what he's saying? If I thought I could change God's mind, I would not pray. I wouldn't even pray. Because I would have to say, how can I presume with the limitations of my own mind and the corruptions of my own heart, how can I presume to interfere in the counsels of the Almighty? No, our minds are too puny to be able to give God advice, it's almost as if you were to introduce somebody who is utterly ignorant of electronics to a nuclear weapons facility, and you let that person into the operation room, though they were untrained, and you told them to go and push whatever buttons they thought appropriate. By doing so, you might precipitate an accidental explosion. There is comfort for the child of God in being assured that our prayers will not change God's mind. This is not what is involved in prayer. And we are not in the danger of precipitating explosions by some rash desire on our part. And, and the sad thing is, some people think that's what it's about. i got to chuck God into this. i got to do it, you know, and they let me call a whole bunch of people and get all them to pray so we can... Get, you know, God gets nagged enough, maybe he'll say, oh, shut up, okay, I'll do it, you know. We don't change God's mind through our prayers. <clears throat> but, in a mysterious way, God uses our prayers to accomplish His predetermined will. Prayer, rather than changing God's mind and plan, is one of the things God has ordained to accomplish His plan. God uses means to accomplish His end, and one of the means God uses is the prayer of believers. You say, I don't get that. That's okay. You don't have to. (laughs) Believers, here's what the Scripture says. Here's what I'm clear of. We need to be people of prayer. People thanking God, especially us in America, Christians in America, just thanking God that we were born here and the freedoms we have. I know we're losing a lot of them like crazy, but we're still better off than anybody else anywhere. There's a song out... On the country music stations by Jelly Roll. Anybody know who Jelly Roll is? No one knows Jelly Roll. Okay. He used to be a rapper. He changed over to country. And obviously he has got some experience with Christianity. From the songs you can tell that he's got something that he knows something, you know, where he's in a Christian home or he knows something about it. And I remember the first time I heard his song, it's called Need a Favor. I was just like, Wow. That's a powerful song because that expresses people today. The song lyrics are this. I only talk to God when I need a favor. I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. So who the hell am I? Who the hell am I to expect a Savior if I only talk to God when I need a favor? But God, I need a favor. And he goes on to talk about the King James Bible on the nightstand. And, you know, I know I should be in church, but I got drunk the night before. And the, the video is really powerful because the video is sung from a dad's perspective whose young daughter is dying of cancer. And this guy's just, you know, and but this is the sad thing, people. Too often, this is us. We only talk to God if we need a favor. You know, it's like the last day. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's God. Hey, God, could you help me out here? Because usually we're so self-sufficient, we're just doing our own thing without any prayer about anything. Now, I would, I would encourage you to listen. Just tell Alexa. She'll, uh, she'll play it for you, okay? <laughs> Need a favor by jelly roll. It is powerful, because I think it's convicting. Well, what does Paul ask prayer for? Well, in our text he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord... May speed ahead. Now, the phrase word of the Lord here is used several hundred times in Scripture. It's repeated over and over in the Tanakh, as well as in the New Testament. And it simply refers to that which is revealed by God, divine revelation. Often in the New Testament, the word of the Lord is synonymous with the gospel. That's what he's asking. The gospel would go forward. It is the message that the eternal Lord of glory, he came to earth. He took on human flesh, he suffered and died in our place for our sins, bearing our punishment that we deserved, and then was raised from the dead. Paul's great concern, what he first asked the Thessalonian Christians to pray for, was that the word of God may speed ahead and be honored. Now the Greek is literally here, will run and be glorified. This is a present continuous tense in the Greek. It's treko, which means literally run. But it's figuratively used of proceeding quickly without hindrance. (coughs) So Paul is asking them to pray that God's message, the gospel, will continue to progress swiftly and without hindrance. And he's probably thinking of Psalm 147, 15 when he says that. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. You know, Paul's just Paul was totally biblical in everything he did and said. And Paul's writing to them and he pray for the word of God to go out. Paul was writing to Paul's writing from Corinth when he wrote this. All right, and remember, Corinth hosted the Isthmian Games, so he may have it in mind an athletic contest here where the winning runner received a prize and is honored. Now, the verb honored here is a continuance present of doc, doc, docamazo to honor, to magnify, to praise. The idea is that God's message, thus God himself will be honored as men recognize his authority and submit their lives to the glorious truth of his faith. Now, before people can ever respond favorably to the gospel, God has to open their blind eyes. God has to raise them from the dead to draw them to Himself. We know that. John 6, no one can come to me. Come to me is used in John 6, is synonymous with believe in me. So he's saying, no one can believe in me. Nobody. Unless God draws them. That's it. So Paul knew that if God didn't open their hearts, that they, to believe what they had heard, they would never come to Him. That the gospel would fall on deaf ears. You know, if we look at Acts chapter 13, and verse 44 through 49, it gives us a picture of, I think, what Paul is asking for here. He wants the gospel to go forward. He wants it to be unhindered. We see this in this chapter in, in Acts 13. It says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. There they are. They're coming to hear. This, he's at, Paul's praying that the word of the Lord may be unhindered, may go out freely. It may run. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. The Jew first, then the Gentile, right? Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light, the, for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord is being glorified. It's going forth. It's running forth, as he said, and it's being glorified here. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. So who believed? They heard the message. They all heard the same message. Who believed it? The ones that God had appointed to eternal life. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. It's going out. People are turning to it. This is exactly what Paul is asking prayer for. He's saying, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. And that's exactly what we see in Acts 13. Then Paul adds, as happened among you. Now, this recalls the amazing success of the message in Thessalonica as described in chapter 1, 6 through 8. He's talking to the Thessalonians. He's telling them what a great church this is. And he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's a really high compliment to start with, okay? They're imitating Paul. They're imitating the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. <clears throat> so they received it in much affliction, and the joy they became an example to those. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. Their faith has gone out. This is They heard the word of God. They believed the word of God. They were living it out. They were following it. This is the kind of progress Paul wanted his team to see wherever the gospel is proclaimed. This is what he's asking them to pray for. And verse 2, he says, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. All right. So he prays they'd be delivered from wicked and evil men. Now, may be delivered here is an aorist pastive subjunctive of the verb ruomai. It means to deliver, to rescue, to preserve. In this tense... And the article here with the two adjectives shows that a specific incident is being referred to in Paul's life. And he may be referring back to Thessalonians 2, 14 through 16. He says, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Yeshua that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen that they did from the Jews. So they're being persecuted. And this is what he's praying. He wants deliverance from this. They killed both the Lord Yeshua and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of the sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. What Paul says here really echoes Isaiah 25, 4 in the Septuagint, where he says, For thou hast been a helper to every lowly city, and a shelter to them that were disheartened, By reason of poverty, thou shalt deliver them from wicked men. Thou hast been a shelter of them that thirst, and a refreshing air to injured men. So he affirms that God is the one who rescues His people from danger. Now the verb may be delivered. ruamai, is used in many ancient texts, both Greek and Jewish, to describe the way that the deity preserves someone who's in danger. So he's saying, God... He's praying that they would be delivered. And they said they'd be delivered from wicked and evil men. <clears throat> now, wicked here is atapos, which literally means out of place. So He wants to be delivered from people that are out of place. Atapos can mean wicked and evil. It's used inside and outside the New Testament tend to revolve more specifically around the notions of out of place, unusual, out of the ordinary. And the three other New Testament uses support that idea. But of the eight times atopos is used in the Greek Septuagint, it refers to people who are out of place in God's moral order because they have violated it. So these are violators of the Word of God and He just calls them wicked. They're wicked and they're evil. In a physical sense, it means painful, spoiled, worthless. But ethically, it means wicked, evil, base, vicious, degenerate. It often refers to an active, malignant kind of evil. One that uh, affects others in some negative way. So these people were probably unbelieving Jews. They're wicked. They're evil men. And then Paul adds this. For all have not faith. Now, I think... Beale's comments on this in his commentary are very uh, very good, worth our thinking about. Beal says this, The faith, ha pistis, with the article, and Paul can designate either objective or subject of faith. Now he says, yet faith with the article within the Thessalonian corpus always refers to the reader's activity of believing. And then he lists all the references. Every time used, Paul uses this in Thessalonians, the faith, ha pistos, he's talking about believing, believing the gospel. So this is a clear declaration, people, that universalism is wrong. Okay? It's wrong. There's people who are not going to believe. Everybody doesn't have faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. Without faith, you will not be saved. And that's what he says, all have not faith. Yet the universalists persist to tell you everybody's going to be saved. Everybody, it's just an attack on the gospel, people, because the gospel says you have to believe it in order to be saved. To reject the gospel is to be under damnation. Okay? There's just no other way around it. All have not faith. And then he says in the very beginning of three, but the Lord is faithful. Now, the but here signals a contrast. Three, two, you've got these faithless opponents, which Paul prays for deliverance. And this is contrasted with the Lord's faithfulness. But God, he said, is faithful. You know, we don't know what Paul's thinking about here, but he may be thinking from Lamentations 3 when he talks about the faithfulness of the Lord. In Lamentations, Jeremiah writes, with tears in his eyes as he watched the temple being destroyed, and Jerusalem burned. And Jeremiah's watching this, and he says this, The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. So he's watching Jerusalem being destroyed, and he just says... Great is your faithfulness, God. I can trust you. I I can depend upon you. I can rely on you no matter what the circumstances are telling me. In the book of Psalms, which recounts more than any other book in the Bible, the struggles of the godly and their total dependence on God's faithfulness, we find reference to God's faithfulness some 40 times. Psalm 40, verse 11. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through all of them. (laughs) For you, O Yahweh, you will not restrain. Restrain your mercy from me, your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Consider just for a moment the necessity of the faithfulness of God. I mean, we deal with faithless people so often. People tell us one thing, they don't support it, they don't come up, they don't live up to what they said they would do. But we understand that God is faithful. Whatever He says, we can count on, we can trust. It's not going to change, it's not going to alter. The Bible says that God is faithful to complete His salvation. It says He's faithful to aiding Christians to resist temptation. He's faithful in His promises, all His promises. He's faithful vindicating believers who suffer. And He's faithful cleansing Christians from sin. He's a faithful God. And believers, if He says something, we can trust it. I think maybe we take that in a little different light than a lot of people because we just take the fact that He said He was coming soon and we believe it. God's faithful. He meant that. We don't try to twist it or distort it. We just say, yeah, He did what He said. Now, the word establish here is from the Greek sterizo, and it means to support, to stabilize, to establish, to fix, to strengthen. In the Septuagint, this term was used of establishing something like a city. The words used 14 times in the New Testament, and all but two, it is metaphorically of providing some form of spiritual stability or strength. So we're dealing with faithful men, but he says God's faithful, and He will strengthen you. The verb sterizo is employed frequently in those contexts where someone is in danger of falling in some way or another. In the New Testament, Ste Rizzo points to the process of establishing someone in the faith, especially in the face of apostasy or persecution. So he said, God's faithful, he will strengthen us, he'll protect us against these evil people. And guard here is fulaso, and it means to watch, to carry out the function as a military guard or a sentinel, to keep one's eyes upon that he might remain safe. So, fulasso is used to describe the shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. In Luke, it's a military word. He guards, he watches over. God strengthens his people, first of all, and then he guards them. The faithful Lord will establish and guard his own against the evil one. Now, behind their unbelief and their evil activity of these evil men is the evil one himself. And again, this is the Greek term paneros, but here it has the article ha paneros, the devil, the Satan, the evil one. This is a common name for Satan in the New Testament. And it calls to mind his character and constant work of actively causing evil, especially against the people of God. We see here the faithfulness of God tied to the protection of the Thessalonians in the midst of their suffering. He will strengthen you. He will protect you. From the evil one. Paul believes that God elects people for eternal salvation and that he is faithful to such an unconditional choice by first calling them to faith by the Spirit and then giving them the ability to persevere through opposition to the end of their lives. This is perseverance of the saints. All right? Perseverance of the saints is God keeping you. Because He's the one who's going to establish you. He's the one that's going to guard you against the evil right up to the very end. He says, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things we command. So he says, We have confidence in the Lord. This is a perfect active indicative and action that occurred in the past that now has become a state of being. Paul's confidence was in the Lord, but it was also in these believers. We know you're going to stand your ground. We know you're going to do well. We're we're encouraged by that. He says that you are doing or will do the things we command. Now, command here is a military term. It's used four times in this context in chapter 3. And this shows Paul's authority as an apostle. He's not requesting. He's commanding. This is what you will do. I believe you're going to do this, okay? You do, and you will do the the things we've told you you're going to do. Now, what's he talking about? Well, he could be referring to when he was at Thessalonica, and he preached to them. He could be referring to the first letter that he wrote them, or he could be referring to this letter itself. Whatever it was, what he told the Thessalonians, he was confident that they were going to do it. They were going to carry it out. And then in verse 5 he says, May Yahweh direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. These new believers were under attack, both from direct persecution and from dangerous false teaching. In that context, a spiritual battle, Paul praises that the Lord will direct their hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Notice in this verse that we have the Lord of God, of Christ. Now, the ambiguity of the term Lord is, is obvious. That's used in a lot of different ways in the New Testament. In the Tanakh, it's referring to Yahweh. New Testament authors, though, often quote passages from the Tanakh where they attribute actions of Yahweh to Yeshua. And that's purposeful because the original inspired New Testament author wanted to affirm the deity of Christ, and he did it over and over. He continually brought up the idea of the unified Trinity, the triune God, and the deity of Christ. They constantly push this because it's important. He says he prays that God would direct their hearts. This is an aorist active optative which reflects a prayer. He's praying that God is going to do this. This is another military term. Make straight by removing obstacles. So Paul used this word in 1 Thessalonians 3.11 where he asked that the Lord would direct our way to you. And here he prays that God would direct your hearts to the love of God. Now this genitive phrase can be understood objectively or subjectively. That is, God's love for us or our love for Him. I think in context here, God's love Fits us better. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. When you understand God's love for you, that's going to strengthen you. That's going to encourage you, all right? God loves me, and He's in control. There's no better, there's no better combination there, okay? None at all. And the steadfastness of Christ. Now, the word steadfastness here is from the Greek hupomone, and it means endurance or consistency. This noun comes from hupo, which means under, And from mano, which means to abide, it speaks of remaining under a trial without giving in. The ability to endure or remain or be steadfast regardless of the intensity or the length of the testing. Hupomone is used in relation to the various kinds of trials that we all face in life as human beings. Whether it be a sickness, pain, financial loss, death of a loved one, warfare, physical and spiritual weakness, persecution... We are to hold up the steadfastness of Christ. You know, there's always a temptation to give up when things get difficult. Hupomone has the idea of remaining under pressure or trials. It means continuing even when everything inside you wants to quit, wants to walk away, wants to give up. It's the fortitude that not only survives trouble, but is made stronger by it. Now this phrase is used nowhere else in Paul's writing. This genitive phrase can mean the believer's steadfastness like Christ's steadfastness or the steadfastness that Christ gives to believers. Either way, it's fine. But I want to notice a discrepancy here. The King James translates that this way. Into the patient waiting for Christ. You see the difference? to the steadfastness of Christ or the patient waiting for Christ. See, the King James and a few commentators understand this to mean that they should wait patiently for Christ's return. Listen, he's talked about that all through both these epistles, but he's not doing it here, I don't think, okay? It's more likely that Paul's praying that the Lord will direct their hearts to focus on the steadfastness that Christ displayed As he faced the cross. So focus on the love of God. Focus on Christ's steadfastness when he was under pressure. And he might be thinking about Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's how you run, with endurance. Looking to Yeshua... The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So we're to endure on the race, and we're to do this by looking to Yeshua who endured and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Consider the example of our Savior. He's saying, He endured. You need that endurance. And Yeshua's example of enduring the cross should encourage them to be steadfast when they're under attack for the sake of the gospel. Now, the apostles' request is that the Lord would direct the Thessalonians' moral life in such a way that they exhibit love towards God and perseverance. They keep going in the midst of this. And that's why we pray for this. We want the gospel to go forward. Pray is an important, prayer is an important discipline in our life, believers. It's an important discipline. We see it all through the scriptures. I think we're just, I don't know, we're definitely weak on this discipline, I think. You know, we're dependent upon the Lord for everything. And prayer demonstrates that dependence. So you need to do a check on your own life and just ask, how much time do I spend in prayer? When do I pray? Is it only in times of crisis? The only prayer when I need a favor? Or am I spending time thanking God for all He's provided for me? Am I demonstrating my dependence on God by my prayer life, or am I demonstrating my self-sufficiency? Only you can answer that question. But I think my personal opinion is that much of our prayer time should be a time of thanksgiving. And Paul said in Philippians, if we start with thanksgiving, it's like when you're done with that, you're like, I guess I don't need anything. Thanks, God. (laughs) I didn't realize how much I had, you know. But we just need to be thankful for all He has given us. Don't only pray when you need a favor, believers. Pray for one another. And not, again, not strictly for their physical things. Pray for their spiritual growth. You know, when someone is going through a physical trial, I pray that God would strengthen them spiritually in that trial. That they would learn from the trial they're going through to trust and rely on God. There's no point in praying, God, remove this. Well, I gave it to him for a reason. So why do you want me to remove it? I'm trying to teach him something. Pray that God would teach them what they need to learn. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your incredible love for us. Lord, we need a reminder. We need constant reminders that we need to exercise the discipline of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the ability, for the freedom, for the great privilege we have to talk to you, the God of all creation, to be able to come into your throne room any time day or night and lay our request before you. Come before you and thank you for all you have provided for us. Lord, make us men and women of prayer, and may our prayer be for the needs of our fellow brothers and sisters, Lord. Lifting them up, encouraging them in the faith. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have of prayer. May we use it for your glory. Amen. Oh, thanks, Gary. Didn't even know I didn't have that. All right, questions, comments? Gary? I just briefly want to say. I know you don't know the details, but it's an incredibly timely message for me. Couldn't you come at a better time? Yeah, good. Thank you. God controls that, I guess, huh? (laughs) And that's, you know, another area that I would appreciate prayer in. You know, pray for me that God would give me wisdom when I'm dealing with a text. You know, to see what the text is saying and not try to read into it you know we all have biases and i try to go to the text without it because there's no point in teaching my view if it's not god's view you know that's just kind of a waste of time but and i sure appreciate the prayer and i hear from so many people we're praying for you and i'm like well thank you i really do appreciate that uh gary and chris from pa says good to hear this message this morning this is my whole life and true peace I can't think of anything better in our lives first thing every day with perseverance. Yeah, I I mean, again, prayer just, it bathes your life in peace, confidence, you know, knowing we can talk to God and again, you're not changing his mind, okay, but probably you're changing your mind, okay, he'll change you through prayer. Okay, this is from Norm, Norm says it's me again. Thank you for today. I have a much better understanding and a lot more peace about it. Not to mention more faith in the marvelous God. Yet another example of his faithfulness. Definitely weak on this discipline. I'm definitely hearing from this. I love this church. Thanks, Norm. We sure appreciate you watching and being with us. And, uh, you know, I guess that's the whole thing to try to encourage. You know, it's it's frustrating to me that um, I know what people want to hear. It's something about prophecy, something about eschatology, okay? I know that because I watch, you know, our social media, and I see what's going on. Preach the message on the end times, man, everybody's watching it. Preach the message on love your wife, oh, three views. I'm exaggerating, you know, but I mean, it stays low, definitely low. I mean, just go on our YouTube, or Rumble channel, look through, look at the title, and look at the views, and you see what people are interested in. And I'm thinking, you know, I mean, we should be more concerned about loving our wife than eschatology. That's, you know, that's much more important, I think, okay? But it's just, I don't know, it's it's kind of confusing. It's kind of frustrating to me because the things we really need, it's like people aren't interested in that. They just want to have knowledge about something. Okay, that's all I got. Not a lot of questions on prayer. <laughs> right? There's not much to... um, Anthony? Well, I think um, prayer is good. It it will always be good. But on on a day-by-day basis, it depends on what comes to you through the Holy Spirit or what comes to you, like you say, through the phone or friends or family. You know, I think it's a point to take time. I'm not going to say how much time, but any amount of time throughout the day if you pray for somebody other than yourself. I think that's helpful is something God wants you to do, not what you can get out of it. But I think it's it's honoring God if you just take a few moments to to pray for other people. Absolutely. You know, Gets our mind off ourselves too, yeah. you know. So often that's all we think about is yeah. us and our problems and our worries and you know, we're not concerned with our brothers and sisters that we need to be lifting up, you know, and praying for. And I, I heard some believers making fun of a Christian woman once because she prayed for everything. You know, I mean, and I just thought, well, they she used the example of she was in the parking lot and prayed for a parking space, you know. I mean, I wouldn't do that. I don't care if I have to walk, you know. I mean, I, matter of fact, I usually park at the opposite end and like to walk, okay. But I thought, is that something to make fun of? Can you be too dependent on God? I don't think that's wrong, okay. I, I just don't. I mean, I think it, Who cares? I mean, I don't really, you know, but I think it's good that she's recognizing, you know, God, I need you for everything. If I'm going to get a parking spot right up front, I need you. Or a handicapped pass, one or the other, you know. (laughs) But I, I just, you know, I don't think there's anything too little that we can go to our Father and, you know, again, the idea is we're dependent. And so that's where we need to ask ourselves, are we being dependent on God or... Are we not? I think that's just, to me, it's such a powerful statement that prayerlessness is a declaration of self-sufficiency. I don't want to be self I can't be self-sufficient. None of us can be, but I think we think we are sometimes. And it doesn't work.